yet, if you would please go ahead and turn to the book of Revelation. We are, as James read, handling this passage of verse 7 through the end of the chapter this morning. And as you followed along, I'm sure, as James was reading, you recognize, quite honestly, we have a lot going on this morning, do we not? In the text of Scripture, there are many questions to be answered. There are many challenges that we face from this passage, as we have faced many challenges in handling the book of Revelation with a word of balance and honest interpretation. And this morning, I have thought of uh, uh, perhaps a way, as with last week, if you did not buy into my black bananas situation... I did get a very good text from someone later that day that showed me, yes, indeed, some very black bananas on a text that I received. And so perhaps maybe this week we'll be able to take another step forward together. And this one is a little bit more straightforward. Maybe you can join with me in handling the relationship between this mysterious woman that John is in awe of and this beast that now arises and is going to destruction. So we see a woman and a beast, and the woman is riding the beast. And so our minds are already just, what is going on here? We're all looking at kind of the same picture right now in our minds. There's a woman riding a beast. And maybe your beast looks different than mine, but we're all looking at some sort of animal probably right now in our mind, or I'm painting that picture for you. Let me paint another one. That is, have you ever seen, as I was thinking, this kind of made sense to me, maybe it will help you. Have you ever seen a tandem bicycle? So as you think about it, maybe we could think about the woman riding the beast is a little bit more for our sake this morning in handling the text of Scripture before us in relationship to a tandem bicycle. So there is essentially in a tandem bicycle, and I, I don't ride myself, so hopefully I have got this right, but I think it's kind of straightforward. There is within a tandem bicycle that you've seen on television or elsewhere one frame, essentially one frame. Then there are two wheels, two sets, of tire, or two sets of seats. So there is a seat and another seat, and then there are two sets of pedals. And there are two riders that work together. Now, that's not the number two, but I just, they work together. Okay, and this is the relationship, if this, if this will help, kind of think, and, and here goes the woman and the beast riding their tandem bicycle, helmets and all, and, and sounding the... Uh, clicker. It is less romanticized than that, but you get the idea. They're working together. So they have their own separate kind of work to do. That is the pedaling. So they have their own elements where they are distinct, but they are both contributing together in tandem for the overall accomplishment of a shared outcome. So too with a bike, that is, you both have your own work to do. Maybe you're in the front and you're working hard and you're thinking, man, this is a really hard journey. And you look back and the person's not pedaling and you're still moving. And you're saying, hey, if we have the same outcome, that is, we want to eventually arrive at our destination, it works best if we work in tandem. If, if you do your part and, and I do my part and together we will arrive by way of shared goal, we will arrive at our intended outcome. This is kind of a relationship or maybe a, a, a picture in your mind that you can think of of the woman and the beast for Revelation 7. 
Let me draw your attention to that to be able to see it by way of verse 3. As the whole text has been read for you, we'll just dive right into our text this morning of the relationship of this kind of picture or image of the tandem bicycle begins there with verse 3. And he carried me away in the uh, the spirit into the wilderness. And this is the angel who had one of the seven bulls there from verse 1. He carries John into the wilderness and he says, John says, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. That was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. Now, what is going on here already with, again, last week we looked at the woman, specifically Babylon, the harlot, with her lies of luxury. She promises you something she will not deliver. And particularly, her element of promise is wealth and provision. If you come unto me, I will provide for you. Don't worry about the standards. Don't worry about the ethics. Drink from the golden cup that I am providing for you. It shows itself in a good presentation, only to be filled with later, John reveals to the church, judge rightly, that cup that is gold indeed as it promotes itself is full of every kind of abomination. And it leads to death. So it is now the woman, this woman in her promise is riding on this beast. And he is said to have ten, uh, his his number is uh, seven heads and ten horns. Now this imagery comes from chapter 13, and we've already dealt with this in the sense of the beast having capabilities. His power. He has tremendous influence. He has a capability to apply force to one who resists. The beast is powerful. What is the nature of the relationship in the tandem bicycle then that the woman has with this powerful beast? So the woman is persuasive, and the beast adds power. If we combine them as they work in tandem, you got it. He provides, as we'll see throughout this text, he provides a persuasive power to the woman's promises. She provides you, she promises to you to provide wealth and luxury, security, remember? And we talked about what is the danger of of laying hold of Babylon for the saint? What is the concern? And it is as we get involved in seeking Babylon and taking the steps necessarily to lay hold of her promises that are dangling out in front of us, we find that fundamentally we have made a shift. God is no longer our security. He is no longer our anchor but rather we are tossed to and fro because Babylon has become that sense of security to us. Wealth, position, accomplishment, finances become our security. And then we find out that those things take wings and fly away. And so we find out that in that golden cup of promise is nothing more than emptiness. So it was Augustine who reminded us that the earth's riches are full of poverty. Yet the beast rides along to the woman, comes along to the woman, the woman rides upon the beast, and together now they forge an even stronger appeal. Now he comes with great force to make her promises effectual. Maybe a little bit more of not so gentle persuasion but persuasion by force. She can simply call and 
lure you in. But the beast, this character who comes out, he has force that he can apply. You're giving me a problem? You're not getting in line? Let me help you get in line. This is the role of the beast. To apply pressure. Capabilities to apply force to the woman's call. And they work together. Force and lie to draw people in or to push them in to the machine that is Babylon. This is where we're going in our passage. We'll see that this is, that this is indeed the case as we deal now beyond the woman and the beast. We kind of now begin to center upon the beast and in his role of power, in his role of force that he can apply to the woman's promises. There's something about the text that we see already in their shared relationship. Why is it that the beast wants to empower the woman's lies? Why is it that he wants to apply force to the woman's lies and corral the people into buying into Babylon and her promise of wealth and luxury? Why is it? And the text indicates it to us by way of color. Look at the beast. You see that indeed what it is that they share in harmony is painted for us by John as he tells us the description of the beast itself. Look there once again in verse 3 and I'll keep reading. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Then you continue into verse 4. He describes the woman. She was arrayed in purple and scarlet. And then it goes on to talk about her, her jewels, her wealth, her promise, her power, her golden cup that she approaches you with lies of impurities, of fornication. And on her forehead is written a name of mystery, Babylon the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. John indicates us here, however, last week we looked at Scarlet. You remember Jeremiah 4, because much of the book of Revelation takes place uh, in prophetic books within your Old Testament. So we, we kind of are informed within Revelation by way of other texts from the prophets themselves as apocalyptic literature is indeed disclosing prophecy. So as the nature of the book functions with prophecy, so it draws upon prophecy from the Old Testament. So we see this woman arrayed in scarlet last week and we saw from Jeremiah 4, the woman who is arrayed in scarlet is it's accentuating her sexual appeal. That is from Jeremiah 4, the harlots who come with their painted eyes to draw you in. The makeup, that is, they woke up and took a shower that day and got all, maybe the term is gussied up, right? And they went out in that persuasive va-va-voom and began to draw the onlooker in. They're noted as God rebukes Israel as wearing scarlet. This color that catches the eye. So it is with Babylon's promise for wealth. They're not empty promises. They don't come in some weird shade of gray. They come in bright, va-va-voom red. And so it draws the paramour in. It draws him in to what he anticipates because of this color. It is perhaps like the bull that sees red. It draws them in. 
So we see this element within the sexual immorality of Babylon as the great fornicator and the mother of the earth's abominations. And she's dressed just like every other woman of the night in the presentation, donning scarlet. Yet there is more to this color. We see that indeed it's drawing people in, but there's something more gruesome about the color. God's people, John is disclosing the right judgment about the color. It's not just va-va-voom. It's actually blood red. The red, that which is scarlet about her, is the blood of the saints. She is a persecutor of God's people. Look at the text. It tells us that right here in verse 6. After this great mysterious name placed upon her as the mother of the earth's abominations, John then communicates to you and I, I saw the woman and she was drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So it is here that her color is now being more disclosed to us as an enemy of God's people not something to draw us in. The reality that stands behind that color is the blood of the saints. She is against Christ and His church. Indeed, so much so that she is drunk with their blood. And it's oozing from her to color her clothes. This unites her in tandem to the beast. You remember now the beast that she is riding with, riding upon? is a scarlet red beast. Or maybe that was redundant. Scarlet is beast, scarlet is red. They're in cahoots. And fundamentally, they come with the same attitude. Destroy Christ and His church. They have a shared desire for the outcome. They are those who work on the tandem bicycle and they desire to arrive at a particular location and they are pedaling together. And what links them is this scarlet color. It's disclosed to us as to what the scarlet is, is it is a persecutor of Christ's church. Now you remember this also so, so let me put it to you in, in this manner. The woman is upheld. Here she is making the promises. She's drawing people in. How many? Last week, she is upon the waters. What are the waters? Multitudes, nations, peoples, and languages. She is very effectual in what she's doing. And she's blinding the hearts of those in unbelief. And here she is. And now we find out behind her. So we draw back the curtain and we see the wizard. And there is the beast empowering her to be effectual in what she's doing. And they share the same blood red color. And then we find out, wait, there's yet another curtain. We pull back this curtain and we find in Revelation chapter 12, we already know where the blood red color comes from, don't we? John says, and I saw a great red dragon. Who then in chapter 13, this red dragon, this scarlet dragon, 
who is seeking in chapter 12 to kill the woman and her children, gives his authority to the beast in chapter 13. So it is that the dragon is standing behind the beast, upholding the beast, chapter 13 tells us. He gives to the beast his authority, his power, and his dominion. He's empowering the beast to be effectual and persecuting the saints. And then it is the beast who then comes up to the woman and they then join on the tandem bicycle and he empowers her. And together, all three of them share the same thread, blood, red, violence. This is the work of the dragon. Satan, who is a persecutor of Christ in his church, Let me just make a brief word here as we kind of take a deep breath together as we think about the unity of the red color, the persecuting power of evil against Christ's church. Let me take a moment to encourage you with this is the common thread that the book has been teaching us since the very beginning. And that is that here's your moment. Here we are together, right here, right now. And I'm going to hit you with this, with this so heavy of application, you're not going to believe its profundity. You won't, you, you, you're not going to believe what, what I have come up with for you. Sin is not your friend. That's it. Some have come in and said, I want something to take away. Take away that. Sin is not your friend. It looks like it. The click begins to tell you it is. But your marriage being broken reveals to you that it wasn't. I seem to apply pornography a lot. You probably say, man, he's always talking about clicking on the internet. Washington Post this week released an article, I think two days ago, about a, uh, a new survey. And you can take surveys and lead them. I think we all watched that in the presidential election. Everybody had their own survey. Take it what you will. But from Washington Post is a new survey among millennials. Again, remember, each generation has to find its own title and niche in order to get out from the age-old truth that doesn't apply to them anymore. And I'll keep going. But millennials, nonetheless, are supposedly me. I was born in the year, you're all going to, whatever, full disclosure, I'm 32. So uh, I'm a millennial, so only millennial rules apply, right? So I'm a millennial, so from the millennials, from uh, 80 and then on somewhere, I don't know where it cuts off. Some of you, even younger than I, perhaps know where it ends somewhere in the early 2000s. And uh, among millennials, there was a new uh, uh, Washington Post poll, and, and, and they're engaging uh, young evangelicals coming up, uh, and uh, it was something to the tune of 70% of young evangelicals, right? You would click on their website, and they would say, this is what they believe. And then they would maybe, through discipleship, disclose to you that Morality is kind of an elastic term. It it has a little bit of give to it. We're learning that as millennials. That, That morality is somewhat subject to interpretation. 
And one of those elements of interpretive data yet to be concluded upon is an occasional glimpse of pornographic material. If we're learning anything from the book of Revelation, we are learning again and again that sin is not your friend. Revelation 9 discloses that it's not just the persecutor of the church, that the woman, the false prophet, the dragon, and the beast, it is not just the church they seek to kill and destroy. It is even their bedfellows who live with them now. The notion that you'd go to hell and party there because you're like them and they're like you is destroyed in the biblical text. Destroyed. Sin is not your friend today and it will not be your friend in eternity. It seeks to steal your joy and replace it with depression. Read Revelation 9. They seek their own death and they can't find it. It seeks to take that sense of marital union and confidence in your wife and her in you and whisper lies into it so that you're paranoid, not confident. Your marriage begins to dissolve. It seeks to whisper to you that job place ethics have a lot of give in them. And so does your Christian testimony. It's situational always. Then what's the definition of what's the best thing to do in this situation? You. Your wallet. Wait a minute, that sounds like Babylon. They are blood red for not just the saints, but indeed all of humanity. They rise and go to destruction and they seek to take you with them. This is the work of the dragon and the beast working in tandem with the woman now on the tandem bicycle working throughout redemptive history. Let's take a few more minutes and let's look at the beast then in particular as I look with you verse 7 through verse 10. Verse 7, but the angel said to me, Why do you marvel at this woman? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not, is about to rise from the bottomless pit and is about to go to destruction. And the dwellers of the earth, whose names, see, they are not friends. The dwellers on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they will marvel to see the beast because it was, is not, and is to come. To the church, this is calling for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he will remain only for a little while. The question that is arising is, uh, to my mind, and I kind of put this to you, is maybe principally we have one question as we go through this passage, and that is, what in the world is being said here? Maybe that's our question. Maybe we could narrow it down, and we could just ask principally, 
who or what is the beast, right? So, so he says, let me tell you about the beast. Uh, it, it has this, 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 and this. And so we're asking quite simply, I just hope to help you understand what or who is the beast, according to the text. Now, Whenever we're handling something difficult, hopefully we've demonstrated this uh, throughout our time in the book of Revelation, and hopefully we can demonstrate it again this morning. And I would commit it to you as, as, as Bible studiers, those who are indeed, I trust, in the Word, growing thereby and working your way through passages. And any time we come against something that seems certainly challenging and difficult, what should we do? It's the same thing that we should do out uh, in, our, in our lives away from this place. When, when in the job place and we find something that is a bit perplexing, you guys do it every day. You, you see a problem develop, and you're seeking to be, uh, offer a solution to the problem. What you begin to do to this, kind of, this, this, this web of complexity and the challenges with, the, with, with what you're facing, you simply, first thing first, start with what you know. And from there, you begin to work from the position of knowledge, not completely shooting an arrow into the dark, into the abyss, and then chaos ensues. Solutions don't follow. Hysteria breaks out. Shared paranoia in the office place because no one can figure it out. But, but, but a guard against that is instead of just critiquing it and throwing things at it, or we could just avoid it and go around. <laughs> but we just start with what we know. So let's just take a deep breath, and, and we'll just slowly walk through this piece by piece, beginning with what we know. And then we'll watch. It's not as mysterious as we might think it indeed is mysterious, <laughs> but maybe not as mysterious as we think. So let's just begin there and let's walk through what we do know to begin to understand who is the beast. Beginning with verse 9 then, indeed this calls for a mind with wisdom. So together, perhaps collectively, we can share our minds of wisdom at this moment and we can together walk through this passage with profitability. The first step about the beast that we see in verse 9 is that he has the seven heads are the seven mountains upon which the woman is seated. Now remember, she is seated where? So far, on the beast. Now we find out she is seated as she is still on the beast, a description of this beast. Seven heads and seven mountains where the woman is seated. So now we're learning more about him in relationship to a different description of the beast. The beast, number one, has seven heads and which are seven mountains. Now, start with what we know. Number one, a historical fact that we can be aided by in handling this passage. What are these seven heads and seven mountains? Well, we know Rome historically, as is consistent with the book, historically through ancient writings, Rome is known as the city of seven hills. Okay, so that, that, that's a non-negotiable. All of us agree there. We already start on the same page. We know historical fact. Rome is referred to as a city of seven hills. Period. That's just... So we receive that. So we begin there. So far we know that the church is already facing a challenge from Rome. From beginning of the book. All the way through. From chapter 12 and chapter 13. So too here is the language of Rome. The beast is somehow connecting now in its description to Rome. The seven heads are seven mountains. Well, we know seven mountains are Rome. That's just starting with what we know. Let's then kind of take the next step, step in verse 
10. So far we're seeing Rome emerge here in this image of the beast. Beginning with verse 10, they are also, so now the seven heads and the, uh, the seven mountains are also one more thing, seven kings. So the seven heads, which we know are Rome, are also seven kings. Now, looking at these two things, let's begin to kind of break them apart. Let's start with what we know. It's not too difficult. Seven, we know, throughout the book of Revelation, is functioning as a number of completion. Do you remember that? So let's consider, um, maybe I can give you a few examples. So here we know we're handling the text as balanced and as honest as possible as we deal with some difficult uh, information here. Seven, if I submit to you that seven is a number of completion, I would share with you since we began with the appearance of the Lamb. And we look at chapter 4 and 5 and so forth. We see that the Lamb appears and He has seven eyes. And he has seven horns. And we already worked through that a while back, so I won't go through all of the bits and the pieces, but to continue going forward. The lamb appeared with seven eyes and seven horns. We look within the judgment of the one return of the Lord, and it is described to us in sevens. Seven seals. Seven trumpets. Seven bowls. In the description Of judgment. It is complete. Nothing will be left standing that is in opposition to Christ. Nothing. So it is as we work our way through the book and we stay in the stride with the book, we find once again Rome or beast has seven kings. So we already know about these kings that their work is oppressive and it is powerful. So we know that the work of the beast in its complete full force is indeed packed with a punch. It is complete in its oppressive power. So then the next step as we consider the work of these seven kings is a word of completeness about their exhaustive power. What are the kings then? Well, we'd say that the kings then are kings or Kingdoms through whom the beast is acting. Right? So, so they, are, they are oppressive. They are complete in their power and in their measures of hurting, wounding, and causing of suffering. We know that it is part and parcel Rome because it's where the woman is seated upon these kings, these heads, and this throne. So we know that we're getting a picture here already rising out of the biblical text without hysteria. That Rome is at work in a ghastly manner. Wounding, oppressing, and causing suffering to Christ's people. But he attaches it to the beast. This is a description of the beast. So what do we make of Rome standing here? But we know we're reading a description also of the beast. Rome is simply a pawn in the work of the beast. That is, in time, here's legislation, here's force. Do you remember earlier we worked through the book on the imperial cult of Rome? Bow the knee and say it now. 
Say what? That Caesar is your Lord? Imperial worship, well and thriving within the first century. So it is that this impressive power with wealth also has might and is demanding worship, imperial religion. So it is coming as a beast that is working through men to persecute other people groups, namely Christ and his people. This is the work of Rome. This is a word to the first century church. The beast is at work through the kingdoms of this earth. Let's continue through this text as we grow. I have yet another question. Are the kings specific then to a single regime? If we consider that verse 9 and verse 10 is indeed Rome, would we say then that the beast is working only through Rome? At this time then, is this text dead? Or is it too alive to the 21st century church in this room? If it is that the beast is working through Rome, and we know that it's the woman, Babylon, seated on Rome's seven hills, is it all consumed and fulfilled by Rome? The answer is no. It is not fulfilled and consummated through Rome. This is a principle that is at work in Rome, but it continues even to this very day. The beast is at work through kingdoms and kings throughout redemptive history. I've said it before, and let me just suggest to you again, turn on the world news. Do you see the beast at work, a principle of oppressing its own? It's not friends with those whose names are not written in the book of life. It's not about that for the beast. It's not about that for the dragon who stands behind him. And it isn't about that for the woman. Come and drink with me. Eat, drink, and be merry. Together we're friends. Only to take you with her to destruction. So it is that the beast functions that same way today through kings and kingdoms even now. Perhaps in America we feel like we're isolated uh, or perhaps insulated, a better word, against that kind of mayhem that we're reading about in the biblical text. But are we? Okay, so we're not physically being persecuted here. We are a land of laws. Well, let us look at our laws. They Many of them are redefining of marriage, which is God's work in creation, which is good for the earth he has given, is redefined. A union which God has established is now by legislation being undone. And by the way, Granted, I won't walk out of here because I said these things and be beaten with a bat. By the way, if I do, I would ask that you aid in helping me. I won't. But we will, together, as we confess the same faith, we will be called, as we sit under the biblical authority of the text, we will be called bigots, unloving, and unkind. We are those who don't care about women's health. 
I don't care if you live or die. Because I don't want you to have abortion. So obviously I don't care about you. There are challenges everywhere. So perhaps we live in a land of law that somehow gives us a sense of these things in Revelation about the beast riding in Rome and really persecuting his people. That is over there and it is a long time ago. We don't hold to that confession, do we? We know that God's word is active, alive, and breathing, doing its work in the church throughout all of the ages until Christ returns. So it is a word written not just to those in Rome, but to the church in America, right here for our good in the gospel, that we would learn to judge rightly. And we would act on that wisely. In the, va- in the ballot box, in our homes, in our job place, we would recognize the beast is still at work. And there's a call even today for loyalty and faithfulness to Christ in the gospel that also calls upon me to be marked by him in the workplace. To follow the biblical morality, even if I be a bigot. To love my neighbor and live sacrificially toward them. Even if they don't reciprocate or want it. There's a word to Christ's people here. That the beast is at work throughout regimes. And God's people are called to be faithful. Let me end with you this last piece here just for a brief moment if I could look at this portion that we know this is the principle of the beast that he works throughout human history and he does it in quite an arrogant manner here as the beast presents itself. Beginning if you just look up there earlier to look at the continual work of the beast throughout the ages, look how he's described, verse 8. The beast that you saw was, is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. Do you notice the three part there? Was, is not, and is. Look at the end of verse 8. Again, the beast. It was, is not, and is to come. Have you seen that three part division before? This is in the application of the God of history. He appeared to us in chapter 1 in his sovereign royal authority. He is the God who was and is and is to come. So it is that the beast, continuing its mimicry of the divine, presents itself to a lost humanity as being also a lord of history. That who was and perhaps is not, but watch yourself, he is to come. And then it's later described to us about this three-part division being handed over, the same principle. How do we know then that if it was and is not and is to come, that it's mimicking the was, is, and is to come. How do we know that that's at work here? Because we see that later in the kings, they are described there as five are not. One is and one is to come. This three-part division. One, five are not, one is, and one is to come. This sense of power about the beast. But what does it mean that five are not? 
That's where we find our clarity about the role of the beast. Five are not. Consider throughout human history, many eras by this time in the first century have come and gone. Five of them. Again, we're taking out of the number five, six, and seven. A complete word of human history. And the beast's role that is what I would say to you, trans-temporal. That isn't bound by time, but works throughout time. That is, so five are not. Five regimes, this sense of Portions of the beast's role in society are over. But there is one that is currently right now to the church of the first century, and that is Rome. And by the way, one is to come. Where are we, the church of Redeemer? Where are we? Are we in the five? Well, no, we know we're not in the five because five are over. That is, a portion of the beast's work in human history is over. But one is. Where are we? If the one is here is applied to Rome and the Christians at that time, then, then I guess we're not anywhere. Or this again, we're back at the same question. Maybe this passage isn't for us. We know better than that. The one that is and is remaining is that same principle of the beast that continues even today. It is at work now, it was at work in Rome. Five are done to the church at Rome. One currently is and is to come. We're still in the moment. One currently is at work. That is the principle of the beast will continue throughout kings and kingdoms, throughout human history, to oppress its own, blind against the gospel, and suppress the church of Christ. For some, it will just mean a bigotry label. Some will mean you don't care about women, you hate them. Some will be as light as that. Indeed, can we not stand firm in the gospel against such petty comment? Yet for many, it will be martyrdom that the woman will be drunk with. The church of Christ abroad. The beast who is scarlet that she rides upon. The great persecutor of the church abroad. Please, we have tried various ways throughout the book of Revelation to keep in front of our minds, which is admittedly challenging, that it is not simply out of sight, out of mind. But the church is spilling its own blood by the hand of the one that is and is currently remaining. Kings and kingdoms. I mean, we think of Matt Reimer. He was unable to even go to Cameroon to do the teaching because of the one that is at work through kings and kingdoms persecuting peoples. It's an unsafe environment, civil unrest. And many are being raped, pillaged, and murdered. And the church of Christ alongside of them are being martyred. Just because it is of Rome doesn't mean it's done. It continues as is throughout human history as the beast is at work through kings and kingdoms. Finally, the last portion there is the question that you probably want answered, maybe. And that is, who is the one to come and only remain a little while? Well, we have great, great, great insight. We just look at the passage itself and it tells us who is the one who is to come. Look with me over at chapter 20 and this is my last word with you this morning. In chapter 20, we see the perfect description of the one who is is to come and remain only a little while. 
verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him. So that he might not do his work of deceiving the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So it is that we are in this period of one is. This, this period. And after the thousand years, he must be released. For how long, does the text say? For a little while. So where are we at? We are in the one that is. A thousand years of working. A thousand years of gospel experience. A thousand work of conquering our foes. A thousand years of Satan's great work at deceiving the minds of those who are blinded. Where they hear the gospel and by grace are being saved. Yet he must come next. Because he will be released for a little while. And the rest of chapter 17 I leave with you is... Much of the fallout from his release. He will gather the nations as we've kind of already seen from chapter 16. He will gather them for war. He will deceive the nations. It's described in chapter 20 also in verses 7 through 10. What he does when he comes out and deceives those in unbelief. And he brings them together to do what? Wage war against the Lamb and his people. So John reminds you this morning. One is It is indeed a difficult age, and one is coming. And when he comes on the scene in the final stage of human history, it will be tremendously difficult, but it will only last for a little while. And then Christ, our conquering king, will come, and he will crush his foes. Death, which is the last enemy, will die. And we will reign with him for eternity. Sin will be vanquished. Righteousness will be ours by experience even. We'll see the church in all of her glory. And we'll be gathered around the throne and we will sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For indeed he's done it. He has gathered a multitude by his blood from every language, every peoples, and every nations. And we will hear, as we shout and scream glory, we will hear myriads of myriads of angels singing with us. The kingdom of this earth has become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Hallelujah. That's the end of the beast. This is the final text. If you're nervous about the persuasive abilities of the woman in your life, you're concerned about the power of the beast that may indeed come in physical suffering, I give to you the words of Christ. Dear Saint, be strengthened. Peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you.
not as the world gives you, but as I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let us pray. Father, we exalt you. We give you.